We are in the middle of a series called Shema, Hearing the Voice of God. Uh, I was listening back to some of Evan's sermons, and he said something that there's nothing as important in the Christian life than this, what it means to hear the voice of God. And I wholeheartedly agree with that, that so much of what goes wrong, whether that's interpersonally, whether that's broader church context, happens when we stop paying attention to the voice of God. And so this, this series has to be much more than a series. It has to be a posture. Um, and Evan asked me to speak specifically, not on what it looks like to hear the voice of God, but for us to remember we are image bearers. And so when we speak, the words that come out of our mouth carry with it profound, sacred power. And so we're going to be spending a few minutes uh, looking over that theme throughout Scripture, specifically one place in uh, Philippians chapter 2. If you have a Bible, you can kind of earmark it there. It's going to be our main text for today. But we have to realize that our cultural narrative around the words we speak has become increasingly cheap. That the words that we say uh, we, can, we can send out on social media or a text, we can send through an emoji, that it seems like language in general has become diluted, but scripture speaks of an incredibly high and sacred understanding of the words that come out of our mouth, and my hope this morning is that we would be able to take kind of a theological view in terms of what we say, um, and also both the power in a negative and a positive sense to reflect the fact that we bear God's image. Think of this verse in Proverbs chapter 18, verse 21, just the sobering reality. It says, death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. Three things we're going to be talking about today, the narrative power of our words, the negative power of our words, and the new life power of our words. And I want to begin with a story. So we have four kids um, ranging from 14 down to seven. Our seven-year-old is our only boy. His name's Augustine. And we, at the time, we only had three girls. And when we were told we were having a boy, I, we didn't know what to expect. Um, but God decided to just give us the amount of testosterone in three boys in one. And so he just came out full speed ahead to the point where I would, by the time he was two years old, I'd carry him. He would knee and kick me in the stomach so hard I tore my abdominal wall. Like this, this guy was just so much intensity, which was a lot of fun and a lot of humor. I remember going to, to his coffee shop one day and he walks up to this gigantic man um, who we did not know and he looks him up and down, just kicks him in the shin. And just like looks at him like, what are you going to do, bro? Like he's that kind of guy, that kind of vibrato. And which was like, which was okay until we tried to put him in kindergarten. And, and we realized, his teacher's like, I don't know what we're going to do. And we're like, Mike, you're the expert. You got to figure this out. And unfortunately, um, Augustine really struggled. And, his, and what used to be kind of cute and funny became problematic. And I remember him coming home one day, and I'm like, how was your day? And the teacher had emailed that he had gotten in trouble, and he just said, and he's like, I'm not good. And he's like, I don't want to talk about it. I'm like, well, Augie, we got to talk about it. And he's like, Dad, I'm just the bad kid. 
And it was like one of those moments as, as a dad where it just stopped me in my tracks and I realized that words that were being spoken over him by friends, by teachers, maybe some of them just in jest, were starting to create an internal narrative of who he thought he was. And at the age of five, he was starting to believe that his wiring and his destiny was wrapped up in this narrative. And I think a lot of us can relate with that because at an early age and even into our adulthood, things are spoken over us. Words, and when they start to accumulate, you start to look at the common thread and things are spoken either so loudly or in such a large amount that we begin to adopt them as what's most true about us. And they start to change us in a very literal sense. Your, your neurology and your biology and your sociology all begin to morph because of the words that are spoken over us. Dr. Mariah Richards starts talking about how we have increased implicit processing that starts firing off in our brains, which means that we have a higher rates of stress and anxiety hormones released in our brain when we hear negative words associated with us. Dr. Andrew Newberg, who's a neuroscientist out of Thomas Jefferson University, says a single word has the power to influence the expression of our genes that regulate physical and emotional stress. If you know Dr. Liu Wing, who the, talks about um, epi, epigenetics and how our, our genetic molecular makeup changes based on our external circumstances, one of those being words. Our, our actual biology changes. It was a really fascinating study done, in, a study done in the 90s by Dr. Masura Emoto, a Japanese scientist who began to start writing words and he would wrap them around uh, cups of water. And one of the, he'd pour pure water into vials labeled with negative phrases like I hate you or fear. And after 24 hours, the water was frozen and no longer crystallized under the microscope. It yielded gray, misshapen clumps instead of beautiful lace-like crystals. In contrast, Emoto placed labels that said things like I love you or peace on vials of polluted water. And after 24 hours, they produced gleaming, perfectly hexagonal crystals which is fascinating thinking that our body is 60% water. That the words carry with it profound power. My, my friend Chris Mayles is a performance coach, so he works with the top executives for IBM and Google. He worked for the, the, at the time, the Oakland Raiders. And he was telling me about the work that he was doing with them and how, if, if you remember a few years back, the only thing the Raiders were known for was like how people would dress up at their games. No one expected them to win. And there, a few years ago, they started having this amazing team. They started winning, and it was the year his company started to work with them. And I was asking him, well, what did you do? And he, and he said this phrase, he says, you will never outperform the inner narrative we believe about ourselves. And so he says the Raiders organization had adopted a narrative that the only thing they were good for was to create a scary persona, but no one ever expected them to win. And so, whether it's at a corporate level, a cultural level, or an individual level, we start to accept the words that are said about ourselves as reality. Psychologists call this speech act theory. You actually put things into reality based on what you're saying, which means the words you say matter. 
They matter, the words you say to your children, your friends, your relatives, your co-workers. Now, before we dive in, I, I want to explain what this is not. In 2006, Rhonda Byrne came out with a best-selling book called The Secret. And you remember that? It was like Oprah's favorite book for like a month. But 30 million copies of that book got, I mean, think about it, 30 million copies translated into 50 languages. And the thesis of that book is if you speak things into the universe, it'll come back, it'll turn into reality. And it was this kind of like hocus pocus, superstitious thing that if you speak enough good things, you'll get checks in the mail and people bought into it. Now, before we judge kind of secular pop culture, Christianity has our own version of that. I remember working at a church that was, that was loudly proclaiming, it was a word of faith church. And, and what that meant is it was a culture that God would respond to you based on the words you said in almost a superstitious transactional type of way. That if you talked about sickness in your body, then, then that sickness all of a sudden became yours. Or if you didn't have enough faith that God somehow would remove his kindness from you. And I watched actually a tremendous amount of damage done because we know we took God's just gracious kindness out of the equation. And there was this sense of like, well, your words are almost like a magic trick. And so whether, again, we're discipled by popular secular culture or kind of a skewed theology within the church, uh, my hope today is that we would correct our theology because we do one of two things. Either we say, none of that's true, our words don't really matter, or we adopt a hypervision of it that kind of gets distorted. And so what we need is, what does God's word actually say about the words coming out of our mouth? And so what I want to begin is just talk about the narrative power of our words. And to do that, I want to go all the way back to the very first page of Scripture, Genesis chapter 1, where we are introduced to God through the sacred Scriptures. And Genesis 1 is, is something that needs to be revisited again and again and again because for the, the ancient followers of Yahweh, this was their introduction to Him. For us, it is our introduction to who God is, and we we learn two really important things. Number one, God creates. And number two, God creates by his words. Genesis 1, verse 3, it said, God, let, God said, let there be light. And there was light. So it should not surprise us that in verse 27, it says that we were created in God's image. We are his image bearers. And so the very first thing that God tasks Adam to do in Genesis chapter 2 is to name the animals. It's to speak something over the, the animals. And, and even when Eve comes along, what you see is this, this beautiful expression where he, he looks at her and says, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, she will be called woman, which in the Hebrew is this a high, lofty praise. He's speaking life. He didn't generate life. But he's, he's speaking something beautiful over her, which is so devastating. In the very next chapter, the words that were once spoken for praise and beauty over his wife were changed to blame. When sin enters the story and God addresses Adam, and, and Adam says, oh, it was the woman you gave me, throwing her under the bus. Our words carry power. Throughout the Old Testament, you see God change people's name from Abram to Abraham, from Jacob to Israel. You see the, the significance and the power of words of what they create. 
which should not shock us that when Jesus arrives at the pinnacle of the story of Scripture, that when John records his gospel, he doesn't begin with Mary or wise men or shepherds. He begins with these words, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and through him all things were made, and without him nothing was made that had been made. In him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind, and that light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. John, as he's thinking about introducing his audience to Jesus, he starts with the idea of the Logos, the Word. And then in verse 14, it says, that Word became flesh. It's just, I love what Evan said in the very first week. He said, Jesus is what God has to say. And so when we look at the life of Jesus, we are seeing the word of God in a literal sense, the communication of God, of his nature and his will amongst us. Now, when Jesus lives life, ministers for three years, crucified, resurrected, ascended, that messaging doesn't stop, it just shifts. Now, if Jesus is what God has to say, then the church is what Jesus wants to say. Now, that doesn't always take place. But the idea of the church is that we would be, his, uh, Jesus' language, his body. We are his representation, his mouthpiece. We are what he wants to be saying to the world at our best. And so when Paul has this understanding, he starts to write a church plant, his own church plant, um, in a town called Philippi, and it's this incredible letter, and he's encouraging them and praising them. It's actually Paul's happiest letter. But right in the middle of that, he starts addressing some damage that's happening in, re in a result of relational turmoil and disunity. And so his instruction to them, which is what we're going to be focusing on today in chapter 2, is he says, listen, you're treating each other out of your own attitude, but you should have the attitude of Christ as you're treating one another. And then he goes on to display, let me tell you about Christ's attitude. He was in the very nature of God, but did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but rather made himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant, becoming obedient even unto death, so that at the right time God would exalt him, that given the name that is above every name, and he gives this beautiful reverse arc, right? He says, Jesus humbled himself. Do the same thing. And then God exalted Christ. He'll exalt you too. And then at the end of chapter 2, he starts getting practical. He starts saying, so, so here's what you do. Here's how you make sure you live out Christ in your community. He says, therefore, my dear friends, as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. So here it is, right? Here's Paul's instructions on how to live Christ's life and word out amongst him. He says this, do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. Now, I have to be honest. 
This is a bit shocking for me in terms of how to practically live out healthy community. It almost sounds like you're instructing like a kindergartner, right? I mean, that's what, this is literally one of the first verses I had my kids memorize. Guys, you know what the Bible says? Do everything without grumbling or complaining. My kids are experts at finding something to grumble or to complain about. We're like on our way to Disneyland and we left five minutes late. And they're talking more about us leaving late than they are about where we're going. I mean, there's something built within them. But this is not an instructions for kindergartners. It's instructions to the church. How do you live out the way of Jesus? Number one, do not grumble and do not complain. And simply by refraining from doing that, he's not even getting on to what to do in the positive sense yet. Simply by not letting those words spew out of your mouth, you will be pure, blameless. You're shining like stars in the sky. I mean, this is good news for us because we're like, oh, that's, that's all it takes. But it's also a little bit daunting because that's all it takes. We just have to watch the negative power of our words that just come flying out of our mouths. So there's just a few, few words on that. The word grumble in the Greek means to essentially to murmur under your breath complaints. So it's not just like the loud person. Some of you guys, when you hear a, a sermon on words, some of you guys already feel defeated, right? Because you're just known to speak before you think and things like that. This isn't just for you. This is for everyone. It's that, it's that, it's that quiet person who has a really bad attitude and just whispers under their breath. They're like, oh, I just can't believe that thing or that person. Or... And he says, if, if you would just stop doing that. that, that word grumbling is used throughout the New Testament as a massive alarm that's going off. The second word, arguing, is an interesting word, and I'm honestly not sure why they translated it as arguing, because in every other time in the New Testament, it's used for the word thought or reasoning. And so, but when you pair it together, the idea is do everything without grumbling or thinking negatively or, or dwelling on in this destructive, divisive kind of way, which makes a lot of sense with the context of Philippians. He says, it's not just what you speak, it's, it's what you think about what you're speaking. It's this bent towards negativity that you have. And he says, if you stop doing this, here's the good news. You'll be blameless and pure children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. That phrase, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation, is taken from Deuteronomy 32.5. And it says the exact same thing. And so what, what Paul's doing here, he says, if you simply don't complain, you'll be better than what the Israelites did. Because what did the Israelites do? Complain. All the time in the desert. And he says that what was happening with the Israelites is happening in Philippi. You guys are just complaining and griping and arguing and gossiping and backbiting with each other. Fourteen times in the Torah it talks about, it records Israel's complaining against they want food, but then they don't like the food they got. They're thirsty, but then they don't like the water they got. They wanted to be rescued, but then they don't like the leader they got. And so it's just, no matter what happens, here's the promised land. There's too many giants. I mean, you, you guys know those people. Maybe you are that person. You're just like, whatever's happening in the room or in your life, it just, it's never enough. And Paul, you can see, he's like, you're doing what the Israelites were doing. You, you, I'm calling you to think about your words differently. But it wasn't just in the Philippians, because Peter uses this exact same words in his letter. 
Listen to 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7. He says, The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and sober-minded so that you might, may pray. Above all, whenever the Bible says above all, pay attention. So Peter's saying, like, listen, if you forget everything I've said, remember this. Love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without what? Grumbling. At the crescendo of Peter's letter, he calls them to love and hospitality without grumbling. It's the inner world, it's the inner language that's going on that for Peter and for Paul and for Jesus, we're saying, we can't do this. Your words matter. Don't just say you're venting. Don't just say like, what? I'm just speaking my truth. Don't, don't, don't justify those things that come out of your mouth that God said, I didn't, this is not what's going to help you shine like stars in the universe. And so what we need to start doing is starting to ask ourselves, why do we say those words that we know that we shouldn't? Let me just give you three reasons why those words come out of our mouth. Number one is self-preservation. Secondly, self-promotion. And thirdly is self-deprecation. First is, is just self-preservation. We, we say negative, controlling, backbiting, gossiping words because we're actually trying to manipulate or control a situation so that we don't get hurt. We're creating alliances or we're doing things or we're trying to control with our words so that it doesn't come right back to us and cause pain. The second thing is, is self-promotion. It's pride. It's that name dropping, it's insecurity, it's that thing that you don't feel that your identity is secure enough so you have to use your words to try and get you to another level. Or maybe for you it's, it's, it's not self-promotion, maybe it's the opposite, self-deprecation, that you use your words to tear yourself down. You live in guilt and shame and condemnation and you're now speaking that narrative over yourself. And so whatever words are coming out of your mouth, I just, I sense the Apostle Paul and Peter, the Holy Spirit, just calling us, says, listen, it's pretty simple. James says it's really hard to do, because if you can control your tongue, you can control every other part of your body. It's not easy, but it's simple. Watch what comes out of your mouth. But here's where things get interesting. You would assume Paul would say something like this, don't grumble and complain, speak words of courage and niceness and kindness. But Paul does not tell you what kind of words you need to speak. He says, he points you to the word that you need to cling to. And if you read it in the Greek, it kind of catches you by surprise. You're expecting him to tell you the opposite of what's grumbling and complaining, but he doesn't tell you what to speak. He tells you what to hold on to. He says this in verse 16, hold firmly to the word of life. So he says, don't grumble and complain, but hold firmly to the logos, to the word of life, zoe. That word hold firm is a fascinating word. And, it, and you, because you think about like clinging on to, grab, grabbing to, but it's, it's something that is rather translated, give your full attention over to, focus on, be obsessed with, with, apprentice under, model your life after, be so closely knit with what? 
Jesus. Which is brilliant of Paul. Rather than giving you a list of words you should say, she says, essentially, do what Jesus does. Speak what Jesus does. Hold firmly to the word of life. What are the words of life Jesus says? So I want to give you a list. It's not an exhaustive list, but hopefully this will help you give you a clue. What, what does it mean for us to hold firmly to the word of life? And the first one is healing to suffering bodies. I think we might have this. Here we go. Here's just a list of words Jesus spoke. Secondly, freedom to those in bondage. Correction to the religiously oppressive. Victory over demonic powers. Identity to the forgotten and marginalized. Belonging to the orphaned. Purpose to the aimless. Restoration to those who walked away. Forgiveness to the sinner. Hope to those in despair. And rest to the weary. These are the words of Christ that he chose to speak while he was here. And my friends, we are called to speak the same words. We're called to, mod, to cling to the word of life, to speak these very same words. Just a couple of examples of, of how intentional Jesus was with his words. Um, there's one time, I, I believe, I could be wrong, but there's one time, to my understanding, where Jesus calls somebody son. And there's one time in all four Gospels where Jesus calls someone daughter. And they're both really interesting times. Number one is, remember the story of the man who's paralytic, who they dug a hole in the roof in Capernaum and they lowered him down with like, you, you know, like an, on a mat, which is just so epic on so many levels. But... There's an interesting point in that story that the gospel writers point out is that this man was lowered down by his friends. Now, not shocking to anyone here because we live in a culture that, that a lot of our relationships are friend-based relationships. But in the ancient Near East, the fact that this man had no family member lowering him down would have shocked the original audience. It would have been expected. You care for your family members. To this day, if you go to the Middle East, you have a responsibility over your family members no matter what. But this man seemed to have no family. And so before Jesus talks about healing his legs or forgiving his sin, the first thing out of his mouth is son. I don't think that's by accident. I think Jesus knew that the healing that this man needed before it was physical and before he even gets to the spiritual healing he ultimately needed, he started to heal his emotional and relational brokenness. Son, your sins are forgiven. And then the last thing he does is he goes and heals his legs. I think about the, the woman who was ha, dealt with the issue of bleeding for 12 years, over a decade. And if you know Jewish culture, you meant that, that was, you were not allowed to enter into society. You weren't allowed to have dinner with your family. You weren't allowed to be within a certain amount of feet of anyone in your village. You had to live completely isolated, away from everyone you knew and everyone you loved. After 12 years of isolation, and she comes and touches the hem of Jesus' garment, and Jesus finally looks at her and recognizes her, the first word out of his mouth is, Daughter. I mean, Jesus carries with him as the word of life brings words of life 
to people who need healing and restoration and identity. And he's not doing it on accident. He's so careful with his words that when there's oppression, he tears it down. When there's people who are, who are, are, are orphaned, he adopts them in. And if you just look at the words of Jesus, they're profound. And what Paul is saying here is cling to it. This is how we ought to speak. Because it changes everything. Because the reality is, is that we oftentimes are the summation of the words that have been spoken over to us. So here's, here's maybe one of the most important questions you could wrestle with as a follower of Jesus. Is, are the words that have been spoken over you, are they louder than the word that God has spoken over your life? That question will determine your level of courage, your level of, uh, of faith, your level of healing. Which voice is louder? I think about Victor Hugo's masterpiece, Les Miserables, who was a, first a novel and then a playwright and then a movie. And one of the most incredible scenes is when Jean Valjean, the the main character is released from prison from years and he gets sent into society with essentially nothing except for this passport with numbers on it. That was his identity, was the numbers given to him. And he finds himself at the house of a bishop who takes him in and welcomes him at his table and he eats dinner with him. And, and during the middle of the night, the internal narrative and the dialogue and the words spoken over Jean Valjean overwhelm him. And so he leaves and he runs away and he steals these silver candlesticks and cups from the bishop's house. And when they wake up in the morning, his daughter, the bishop's daughter, has come and say, we've been robbed. A little bit later, the police bring the now captured Jean Valjean back to the bishop's house for him to identify this was the man who stole his silver. And the priest, or sorry, the bishop shocks him and everyone involved by saying, oh, well, why did you bring him back? He says, well, he stole his, this was a gift. I gave him these things. And he says, this would help him on his journey that you've now stopped him from and starts rebuking the police for bringing him back. And after the police leave, he pulls Jean Valjean close and he calls him and he says this, my brother, you no longer belong to what is evil, but to what is good. I have bought your soul to save it from black thoughts and the spirit of perdition, and I give it to God. And that interaction changes the course of Jean Valjean's life. And that may be a novel, but isn't that all of our stories? That there's a war of words going on in our soul. And the question is, which one will you believe? Because which one you believe ultimately will dictate the words you then go and give to other people. The words you speak over your children, the words you speak to your coworkers, the things you murmur in secret will flow out of the words that have been said over to you and the words you choose to believe or not. And so Paul does something brilliant. He says, don't do this. Hold fast to the word of life. Model after him. So that's really, that's our, our first action point. Speak the words of Jesus. Speak words like Jesus. But here's number two. We're not only modeling our words after Jesus, we get to speak words to Jesus, right? Also known as prayer. 
We don't have to just mimic him. We get to speak directly to him. And your words matter over people, but your words also matter when you pray, when you direct them to Jesus. It is one of the most underutilized, powerful gifts we have in the church today is a people committed to prayer. I love what um, Leonard Ravenhill says. He says, the Cinderella of the church today is the prayer meeting. This handmaid of the Lord is unloved and unwooed because she is not dripping with the pearls of intellectualism, nor glamorous with the silks of philosophy. Neither is she enchanting with the tiara of psychology. She wears the homespuns of sincerity and humility, and so it is not afraid to kneel. If we want power in our words and conversation, lean into the power of your words to Jesus. Let prayer, again, your prayers matter in a profound way. That verse that we quoted in 1 Peter 4, talking about not grumbling when we practice hospitality, continues saying, each of you should use whatever gifts you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. Listen to verse 11. If anyone speaks they should do as one who speaks the very words of God. Think about that. If anyone speaks, they should speak as they have the very words of God. Your words have power. And so Paul kind of concludes this section, interestingly enough, with another sort of plot twist. Because we have no hope of changing our words unless we've changed our heart. So it's kind of the irony of this sermon is the more I studied about changing our words, the more I realized that it actually is impossible to happen without changing your heart. So really, this is a sermon about changing your heart clothed in a sermon about changing your words. That's what we need. Jesus in Matthew 12, 33 says, make a tree good and its fruit will be good. Or make a tree bad and its fruit will be bad. Or for a tree is recognized by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you who are evil say anything good? For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. That's one of the most debilitating verses in the Bible. Because you all know that time when you say something you know you shouldn't have and immediately you're like, that's not what I meant. Anyone else? Like, oh, it's not, well, that's not my heart. Like, that happened literally this week in a conversation I was having with my wife. And I said something, and as soon as I said it, I was like, ugh, that's going to cost me. Um, and then I'm like, and I, I was trying to like backpedal. I'm like, oh, but that's not really what I meant. The problem is Jesus says, actually, that's exactly what you meant. Because you don't speak out of anything other than what the heart is full of. Which is why I think the brokenness in our words is maybe one of the greatest gifts to us in terms of our need for salvation. We live in, we live in a culture that wants to say, you don't really need a savior, you're a good person. But the reality is, and James so brilliantly 2,000 years ago says, just look at your words. Jesus says the problem with your words is because you have a problem with your heart. We need a new heart. And so it will be absolute 
an absolute wash for you guys to leave here just being like, I'm going to do better with my words if you have not let Jesus touch your heart. Which is why I'm so thankful for Ezekiel 36, a prophecy given hundreds of years before Jesus shows up. Thinking about what Jesus would come to do, he says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And that's our prayer this morning. I mean, I, I don't think it's coincidental that this new spirit, when he eventually fell on Acts chapter 2, what's the very first thing that happened? Their tongues changed. Their words changed in a literal sense. When their new heart was met with a new spirit, the very first fruit of that was new words. And that's what I think the Lord has for us today. For us to posture ourselves, say, Lord, I, I know you're not just after behavior modification. I know you're after heart transformation. So, Spirit of God, would you come and renew my heart so that I will be able to go and have a new tongue with new words given? Because this is where everything flows out of, right? What we read the first Proverbs, life and death are in the power of the tongue. Let me, let me come back to the story I told you of Augustine. So um, around, the, around Christmas time, my wife and I realized that my son was starting to adopt an internal narrative about who he was based on the words people were saying to him. And so we just decided, we, we told our other, we told her his older sisters, we only tell Augustine he's a good boy. We only point out what he's doing well. We only encourage him what he has. So my son, obviously, really intense. So when he would, like, want to wrestle or get really intense, I would grab his hands, and I would say, Augustine, God gave you strong hands. And he's like, yeah. <laughs> I'm like, do you know why God gave you strong hands? And, he, and he's like, to fight ninjas. I'm like, yes, but also... I said, God gave you strong hands to protect people and to love people. And to this day, every time I, I'll grab these hands, I'm like, why did God give you strong hands? He says, to protect people and to love people. And so we started just speaking word, intentional words over his life. And I want to let you know, as he went back to school in the spring, he started coming home with these little slips in his backpack from his teacher saying, Augustine's doing so well. He stayed after class during recess to push the chairs in. And he started getting more and more of these reports. And we're picking him one day. The, the principal of the school runs to our car and says, what's happening with Augustine? I'm like, what do you mean? He says, everyone's talking about him at the school. And I'm like, oh no, what happened? <laughs> and he says, he's been the most helpful student. We want to give him an award in front of the entire school for who he's become. And I've watched the, in, and again, to the praise of God, but his internal narrative shifted from I'm a bad boy to now I know I'm honored. I live honorably, um, and it's because of the words. And I think that as we get ready to conclude this morning, uh, there's, a, there's a few things that God wants to do in this moment. Number one is I think we have to be honest a little bit about the words that have have become embodied in our life. Those words that were spoken so much 
that they have become the internal narrative we've adopted for our life. And I don't, I don't know what that is for you. I know for me, uh, I grew up in a house where my siblings were intellectually brilliant. They all work in tech jobs, they're great at math, um, and I really struggled. And my parents, who are amazing and love Jesus, uh, worked really hard with me. But at my school, the, the, the dialogue that I was getting was like, you're never going to graduate high school. True story. Um, I was in speech therapy till I was 13 years old because I couldn't say my words right. And there's something so powerful that happened when I started realizing I was adopting this narrative. I can't speak well. I'm not smart enough. And... And that was living, as I was getting ready to graduate high school, that had become the predominant narrative of my life. And the only thing I was good at that time I thought was music. So I'm like, I'm going to go be a musician because I'm not smart enough for school and I can't talk to anyone, so I'll just write songs. Five years ago when we planted Light Church, I didn't realize it, but our little white chapel that we started meeting in in Encinitas is across the street from what used to be an elementary school where I used to get speech therapy from. And I thought, how wild of God to plant our church across the street when I started hearing a narrative that I didn't know how to speak. And I, and I think this morning what God wants to do is he wants to highlight, you've heard lies, some of you for years. And this summer, this series, is to equip you to hear a different narrative. What is God speaking over your life? And would you have the courage to believe that voice over any other? And secondly, what is God in empowering you to do in terms of the, of the story you're speaking over others? The words you carry over others. It's incredibly profound. There's power in your words. Again, not in a superstitious, universalist kind of way, in a divine, sacred kind of way. We speak words like Jesus because he is the word. So I'm going to invite Drew to come join me up here. And I'm going to lead us just through a time of prayer um, for us just to, just to have an honest moment with the Lord. Just to say, God, what, what are the words I've absorbed? What are the words that I've been spewing? And how do you want to heal my heart? So that I will be able to, to live more holistically and restoratively with the words coming out of my mouth. And so as I pray, I'm going to invite, if you're a community leader, if you can go to the sides, um, there's people who would love to pray for you. Um, I got to pray with a few people last service, and it was so profound listening to, like, the, the story they've adopted about themselves and then to hear what God was speaking over them instead. And so I wanted just to leave some time of prayer, and then we're going to have some time of worship and communion. Um, but ultimately, I think this is a day of healing. It's a day of healing of our heart, which will then produce healing in our words, and it's a day of empowerment for the Spirit of God to come, even like Acts 2, with a new heart and a new spirit.